We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and the ninth chapter this morning. The book of Isaiah and the ninth chapter. I'll be reading and then preaching on verses 1 through 7. That's Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Let us hear God's word. Here Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together on this day, and we ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher and guide, and give us an understanding of this wonderful text of Scripture and help us to apply it on this day for the good and the encouragement of our own souls. But we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. For many years, the nation of Israel stumbled in darkness and distress because of her sin. And in her darkness and distress, Israel experienced devastation and oppression at the hands of other nations. In fact, as the prophet Isaiah wrote to Israel here in our text this morning, the attack of the Assyrians upon the northern kingdom of Israel was imminent, and God's people would soon be swept away into captivity. And yet, in the midst of this difficulty and distress, God, who never wavered in his faithfulness to his people, gave Israel a great promise, a promise of a great light who would one day break upon the people and this great light would come in the person of a savior king who would arise and who would not only deliver Israel from her bitter captivity, but who would bring the same blessings, spiritually speaking, to all peoples, to all nations 
by bringing lasting spiritual peace to the earth. Friends, it only seems appropriate that we should consider Isaiah's prophecy regarding Israel's great light and the Savior King who was promised to us because this is the season that we acknowledge that such a one has indeed come. And I think the best way for us to rejoice in this truth this morning is for us to consider briefly what Isaiah promised and then direct our thoughts and our hearts to the one to whom these words speak. I want us to begin by considering Israel's great light and how he would dispel Israel's gloom, which is described in verses 1 through 5. And how is he presented and displayed in these verses? Well, notice verses 1 through 5. Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and to the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And who exactly is the prophet Isaiah speaking of? And to what events is the prophet describing here? Well, clearly the prophet Isaiah is speaking here to Israel, who was often portrayed, as you know, in the prophets as an unfaithful bride or wife. And the events he is referring to here are not past events, but impending events. For as I stated earlier, soon the Assyrians would invade and Israel would be under great distress as she witnessed her gradual fall to her captors. For soon the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali would be separated from Judah as a form of divine judgment, which is what Isaiah is saying in these words. Notice he says, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Then afterward, Israel would be heavily oppressed as the northern kingdom would be divided into three provinces under Assyrian dominion. And these providences would eventually be inhabited by Gentiles, which is referred to here in verse 1 as the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And yet Isaiah declares here that the gloom that Israel would know through those events, would not last. That gloom, that anguish that she experienced would not continue forever. For Isaiah prophesies here in verse 2, speaking of the future, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And what, or better yet, who was this great light which would be seen and which would shine upon Israel after she had been so long in darkness, after she had passed through what seemed to her a dark tunnel of distress? Well, some scholars have suggested that this great light that's being referred to here by Isaiah would simply be Israel's sudden realization, like a light turning on in the people's heads that God would lead them out of darkness and that deliverance would eventually come to them despite all that they had been subjected to in captivity. However, clearly that interpretation of this verse is woefully inadequate 
For in these words from Isaiah, there is not only the promise of deliverance from darkness, which alone is an encouraging revelation, but even more encouraging was the revelation that God was bringing light, not merely as a promised change of circumstances, but God was bringing light in an actual person. In an actual person. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because Matthew, in his gospel, namely Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, writes of a certain person who leaves Nazareth and comes to Capernaum by the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was once spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea behind the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, Matthew says, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death upon them, a light has dawned. For what Isaiah was prophesying about in Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 was not just the impending invasion of the Assyrians and how they would advance and sweep the northern kingdom into, into captivity, but also of the coming of Israel's great light as a living person, as the person of Jesus Christ, and how he would actually appear and shed light on that very same path. Notice the mention of the very same places. Notice the mention of Jesus Christ going along that very same pathway. The pathway that was the path in which Israel was swept away into, into captivity is now the pathway of the coming of the king. What would this great light bring as a result of his appearance and his shining upon Israel's darkness. Well, Isaiah prophesies here in verses 3 through 5 that he, this great light, would usher in three great blessings. And notice these. First, he would restore fruitfulness and joy to Israel. And the people would rejoice before him as they would after a great harvest or after a great victory in war. For notice what Isaiah wrote here in verse 3. You, speaking of this great light, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And they, the people, rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. What spoil? The spoils of conquest and victory. For this great light would actually take away all their gloom. Notice that. He would take away all of their anguish. He would replace it with rejoicing. Let me just say that this great light still does this same thing today. He takes away the gloom. He takes away the anguish for those who recognize who he is, for those who place their complete trust in him. He dispels our distress. He drives away our darkness. He gives us reason to rejoice. Then secondly, in addition to restoring Israel's fruitfulness and joy, this great light would also relieve Israel from its oppression, from the cruelty of its oppressors. And he would do so in such a way that there would be no doubt as to who did it. 
For in speaking of Israel as the one who had been freed from cruel service, Isaiah writes here in verse 4, notice verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What actually happened on the day of Midian? Here's a reference here to a biblical event. Isaiah refers to it here in verse 4. Well, it was on the day of Midian that God granted Gideon a great supernatural victory. In fact, we read about it in Judges chapter 7, where Gideon and a mere army of 300 men armed with only trumpets and lamps and golden pitchers, excuse me, broken pitchers, defeated all of the mighty host of the enemy. And here Isaiah declares that this great light will deliver Israel in just such a remarkable way. It'll be a miracle of God, a work of God that no one can dispute. And then thirdly and lastly, Isaiah reveals here that this great light would bring such a decisive victory and such deliverance that the very weapons formerly used in battle would be destroyed. For Isaiah writes here in verse 5, notice verse 5 of chapter 9, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For what further use would there be for such weapons of warfare once this great light had shined upon the people. So this great light would bring great blessings to Israel, and yet he would bring even greater blessings to the entire world at large as the great, as our great Savior and King. For now, Isaiah turns his attention to the wider shining or the greater manifestation of this great light here in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. For it is here that we see the second major theme of this chapter, and that is our great Savior and King revealed. Yes, a greater light came to Israel, but a great Savior and King has come to us. For in these verses, verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9, the prophet Isaiah reveals to us how this great Savior King would make his entrance into the world and how his saving power and his sovereign rule would be displayed. And how would this great Savior and King make his entrance? Well, notice Isaiah reveals here in verse 6 that he would make his royal and yet humble entrance as a child. And as a son, for Isaiah writes, for unto us, unto the covenant people of God, a child is born to us, a son is given. And would this have been good news to those who heard Isaiah's announcement? Indeed, it would have been good news for the announcement of any child or the announcement of the birth of any child, especially a son, would have been a source of great joy to the covenant community of God. For children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And a son especially brought the blessing of a male heir. And yet, brethren, Israel's announcement, or I should say Isaiah's announcement, 
that this great Savior and King would come as a child and would come as a son would have been especially joyful news to Israel, given that Isaiah had already prophesied that a male child would be born to a virgin as a sign that God had not forsaken his people, as a sign that he would indeed dwell among them. For Isaiah prophesied earlier in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. No doubt Isaiah was referring to that same son, Emmanuel, God with us, as he wrote these prophetic words here in Isaiah chapter 9 regarding this son. And so first, Isaiah informs us that this great Savior and King would appear as a child, as a son, demonstrating that God's promised son would arrive. And then not only this, but Isaiah also reveals here in chapter 9 and verse 6 that this child and son would actually rule over his enemies rather than being ruled himself. For notice what he writes here in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Meaning that he would possess, he would carry absolute rule or authority and no one who sees him arrayed in his power and authority would ever doubt that he came to rule, would ever doubt that he came to bring all things into submission under his feet, because despite his lowly and humble entrance, he came to occupy a throne. His throne. What kind of ruler king would he be? according to Isaiah. Well, here in the last part of verse 6, Isaiah tells us what kind of ruler king he would be by sharing four of his names. Four of his names. And these are not just any names, but these are what Hebrew scholars call enthronement names. Enthronement names. Names which would be read or even sung about a king during his enthronement ceremony. And I think knowing that adds a special nuance to what Isaiah is saying here. These are enthronement names sung or read during his enthronement ceremony, which were intended to characterize his ruling ability, his great wisdom, and his awesome power as the Savior and King. And what names would this great Savior and King be known or renowned for? Well, if you have the older King James translation of this text this morning, the, the first two names mentioned are Wonderful and Counselor. However, here in the English Standard Version, which I'm using today, and I know many of you use it as well, these two names are combined into one name, which I think personally is a, is a better translation. And this one name, this first name that he owns, that he has here, is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful 
counselor. And the idea here is not merely that he is wonderful, and indeed he is, but that he would truly be a wonderful counselor to his people as they sought his help and his guidance. In fact, many Hebrew scholars insist that this name refers especially to his ability as a comforter and as a guide. As a comforter and a guide. For in these roles, he comforts and guides his people in the counsels of God. He, he leads them down the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Because he does this so well, people hold him in wonder as they marvel at his comforts and his counsels. And of course, this is even true in our day. For as we look into Christ's comforts and counsels today as they are expressed in his word, we cannot help but be in wonder and awe. Then second, Isaiah states here in verse 6 that this great Savior and King would be called the Mighty God. The Mighty God. And no doubt this name speaks to his deity. For clearly, as we saw earlier in Isaiah 7.14, this child born of a virgin would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us now. And yet, while the deity of this great Savior King is surely proclaimed here in verse 6, this second name actually speaks more powerfully to his role as the divine warrior. That's really the idea here. He is a divine warrior. He is the one who decisively goes to battle on behalf of his people who are under siege. He is the one who defeats all their enemies with his own limitless might and power. In fact, some scholars believe that this second name conveys the idea that Moses conveyed back in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3, where Moses sang a song to God, the song of Moses, and in that song, Moses said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. For through this name, the mighty God, Isaiah's readers were to be encouraged to see this great Savior and King as the one who engaged in battle and who is now returned victoriously. That's why Isaiah mentioned earlier the joy, the rejoicing that comes through the spoils of war, right? Because the great warrior king has gone forward and the great warrior king has engaged in battle and now he's returned victoriously and now he sits enthroned above as one who has proven his might and his strength as one who brings his people comfort in knowing that he has prevailed. Certainly, if you are a believer this morning, the Lord has fought your battles. You have known the Lord to be a divine warrior, a great warrior for you, and the Lord has prevailed for you. Then third, Isaiah states, continuing here in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, that this great Savior and King would be called Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. And what does this name communicate about him and his rule? Well, several suggestions have been made as to what this phrase or this name everlasting father means 
First, some suggest that his name, this name communicates that he is the father of eternity. And that as the eternal one, he is the source of eternal life itself, which he bestows upon his redeemed. Others suggest that he is the father of a new everlasting age to come. And that as the founder of a new age, he will rule over that age and his rule will be everlasting and unceasing. And, and certainly there is a great measure of truth, a, a great measure of appeal in both of these interpretations. However, I would suggest to you this morning that the best way to interpret this name, Everlasting Father, is to see it as a declaration that this great Savior and King will be a Father forever. A Father forever. A perpetual Father. Because this name speaks not just about eternity, but about the fatherly nature of one who is eternal. For he, this great Savior and King, will never cease to be a father. He will never cease to be a provider and a caregiver and a protector to his people. He will be renowned among them for his fatherly care. In fact, the fatherly care of God is a theme even in the beginning of the book of Isaiah where God declares in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up. Why? Because he is a father. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now here in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, Isaiah reveals that this coming Savior and King would excel in this role, that his people would look to him as a perfect father, as the father who ever lives. And then as his fourth and final enthronement name, Isaiah informs us here at the end of verse 6 that this great Savior and King would be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And what does this particular name mean? say about him well it most certainly affirms that he will prevail over all conflict and strife and he will bring a final end to war and yet this enthronement name prince of peace means much more than that the hebrew word translated into the english word peace here is the word shalom shalom which means much more than merely the absence of hostility. But it means the presence of wholeness, the presence of harmony and completeness. For these are the lasting fruits of true peace. These are the fruits Isaiah teaches here, which will flourish under the great King and Savior's peaceful rule. The people will know he has secured this special kind of peace, this perfect lasting peace for them. And so these are the names, the enthronement names by which our great Savior and King will be called. These are the names by which we know him. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, our Divine Warrior, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And they describe without qualification or hesitation 
the one who is unmatched in wisdom and might and fatherly care and protection and peace. And it is primarily through these four names, Isaiah states, he will be adored. And yet, how will his kingdom be recognized? Well, Isaiah informs us here in verse 7 that his kingdom will also be known by several things. First, it will be known for its prosperity. It will be known for its prosperity. Isaiah writes here in the beginning of verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. And what does that mean? It means that there will never be an end to the forward movement of his kingdom. His kingdom will go forward. And by the way, his kingdom is going forward. It's not thwarted at all. It will be a kingdom that will outstretch and outlast all other kingdoms. It will be a kingdom that will be blessed with increase, not just numerically, but in terms of spiritual prosperity. For everything found within the bounds of Christ's claims as king will be conquered. Everything will experience growth. Everything will prosper at his hand. In fact, we should be encouraged by this truth. Then secondly, Isaiah informs us here, continuing in verse 7, that his kingdom will not only be known for its prosperity, but for its legitimacy. Its legitimacy. For Isaiah writes here that this great Savior and King will sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Or in other words, he will be the legitimate, uncontested heir to great King David's throne. And he will be David's promised seed according to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 12 and 13. And he will be the one who will build a true spiritual house for God's name and whose throne will be established forever by God. For he will not have ascended to the throne through conflict or war or through political maneuvering, but his kingdom will be his by divine right the crown rights of Jesus Christ. God's seal of legitimacy shall be upon his rule. And then thirdly, Isaiah informs us here in verse 7 that his kingdom shall be known for its integrity. Its integrity. Prosperity, legitimacy, integrity. For great kingdoms in the past have fallen through corruption and godlessness. Many kingdoms have been unjust and oppressive to the people, which has led to their downfall. But this great Savior and King will rule over a truly righteous kingdom. For Isaiah writes here that he will reign with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For his kingdom will reflect his own justice, his own righteous character, for those who dwell under his rule will rejoice because of it. So this is Isaiah's description of our great Savior and King to come, as well as his description of Christ's reign and justice and righteousness. And did Isaiah have good reason to be confident that this great Savior King would come? That his kingdom would be just as Isaiah described he most certainly did have reason to be confident. For in giving the reason for his optimism here, Isaiah writes at the end of verse 7, notice these words, I, 
I love these words. I rejoice in these words, and I think you should as well. He writes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is zealous to do this, and in his zeal, he has done it. For Isaiah knew that God's own zeal to bring glory to himself, combined with the determination to reveal this great Savior and King, would ensure that these prophecies would actually come to pass or be fulfilled. Did the zeal of the Lord perform these things just as Isaiah prophesied? Indeed it did. For in God's own appointed time, as you know, as we read about from the Galatians reading this morning in the reading of the gospel, this great light came. For the Apostle John in verse 9 of John chapter 1 referred to Jesus as that true light who came into the world. Only Jesus came not merely as a light for Israel, but even as a greater light for the world. And not only this, but when Mary went to tell Elizabeth of her pregnancy, she praised the God of Israel for bringing the very blessings that Isaiah had prophesied about. For Mary declared in Luke chapter 7, in verses 50 through 54, these words, she said, and remember the words of blessing from Isaiah, as I read these words, Mary said, His mercy is upon all who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength in his arm. There's words of deliverance. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. There's the language of conquest. And exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty, the language of restoration, end of oppression. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And all of this, Mary proclaimed, in direct connection with the future arrival of her soon-to-be-born child and son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once Jesus arrived, he began his public ministry. He, Jesus, demonstrated that he deserved all those names, all those enthronement names that the great Savior and King mentioned in Isaiah 6 owns. For as the people heard Jesus teaching, they realized that he is indeed the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. In fact, everywhere he went, everywhere he taught openly, the multitudes marveled at his teaching, and they were drawn to it. And even our Lord's enemies who wanted to stop him proclaimed, No man ever spoke like this man, John 7 and verse 26. And of course, his own disciples recognized his remarkable counsel when they declared, O Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life. Then we read in the Gospels how Jesus also revealed himself as the mighty God, the divine warrior for his people. For shortly after his baptism, Jesus did battle with Satan in the wilderness, remember? And he prevailed against Satan's temptation, showing himself to be strong on behalf of his people. 
Jesus continued to do battle against his enemies and the enemies of his people throughout his ministry, culminating in his victorious work on the cross where he finally triumphed over Satan and sin and death. And in the future, Jesus will appear again as our divine warrior on the day of his appearing when Jesus will punish all those who have troubled and persecuted his people and upon those who have not obeyed the gospel. We can see from our Lord's ministry how Jesus revealed himself as an everlasting father. A father to his people forever. But Jesus gathered his disciples to himself and he cared for them as a father cares for his own children. He nurtured all of his disciples, every one of them by his words. He guided them along the good and straight path. He pledged to them as a loving father would do his undying love to them and he willingly laid down his life for them he assured them of his continued protection over them declaring to them that he would never leave them he is a forever father a perpetual father he would never forsake them that he would always be with them even unto the end he will always abide with his people and then in addition to these roles, Jesus has also demonstrated he is the Prince of Peace. Jesus came preaching words of peace, informing men that he came down from heaven to reconcile them to God. Furthermore, he obtained peace for us through his work on the cross. For we're told in scripture that he abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances which were against us. He removed the conflict. The peace that Jesus now gives to his people is a truly lasting peace. It is shalom. It is harmony. It is wholeness of soul. It is a peace that will eventually rule and prevail over all things in the eternal state that is to come. And not only these things, but the kingdom that our Lord Jesus has established is the very fulfillment of the kingdom that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 9, 7, 4. The kingdom of our Savior and King is a prosperous kingdom. The kingdom of God today is a prosperous kingdom. It consists of countless multitudes of souls, both dead and alive, who have been purchased by his blood. It is a kingdom that will continue to advance as long as Jesus is on the throne. It is a glorious kingdom of power and of supremacy. And Jesus is now seated upon his throne of his father David, Acts chapter 20, excuse me, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 and 30. He's now seated. It's not that he will be seated. He is now seated upon the throne. He is now ruling. He rules over an everlasting kingdom that God promised to David long ago. And then lastly, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of our Lord in Christ is a righteous kingdom, for it has been established upon the righteousness and just character of God himself, who is called in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, the righteous judge. And it will continue to stand, it will continue to increase in righteousness and justice throughout all eternity as Jesus sits upon the throne of God and he continually is served by them. And so I've shown you from the New Testament itself how Jesus was Israel's great light, how Jesus is the great 
king and savior promised by the prophet Isaiah, for Jesus alone brought the reality of light and deliverance to Israel. Jesus alone entered this fallen world as a son to a virgin, though very God of very God, to manifest himself as the only savior and as the great king who is truly beyond all comparison. How should we respond to him then? given who he is, given that he has these great enthronement names. Well, let us first see Jesus in the way that Isaiah portrayed him in verses 1 through 5 as the light that shines into the darkness, as the one who restores, increases joy, and brings an end to hostility, and especially that hostility which remains between God and those who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, maybe there are some here this morning who would admit that you are still in darkness and you truly perceive yourself as being oppressed through sin, but you have not come to the light that you might experience its liberating rays. Oh, linger no longer in darkness today. But come to Jesus Christ who can liberate you, who can bring you out of darkness and into his light, who can take away your gloom and anguish and give you joy. He is the true light. He is the light that brings life as well. Then secondly, friends, let all who have been drawn by God's enabling grace to the light, let all of us who have had our eyes open to the brilliance and beauty of Christ Rejoice in him this morning. Rejoice, and I say rejoice, for he has shown himself to be, he has shown himself to you and to me to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty warrior, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. Oh, my dear friends, let us resolve to worship Jesus Christ for who he truly is today. Let us resolve by the grace of God, if we're not a believer, to come to Jesus Christ this morning for that light and that life that only he can give. Let us in this season, and not just in this season, but in every season, at every moment, express our obedience and our trust and our endless appreciation to Jesus Christ. To God be all the glory this morning, and may all the honor go to Jesus Christ as we consider him in Scripture this morning. May the Spirit now do his will. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace, and what a privilege it has been today to consider From the book of Isaiah, this great light and this great Savior and King to come, and then to consider from the New Testament as well, how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all that Isaiah promised, and he is that great Savior and King that we so need this morning. We would ask us, we would ask you to show us our need of this great Savior and King today, especially if we're not a believer. Help us to understand that we are in desperate need of him. 
Help us to understand that our sins have separated us from God if we're in a state of unbelief. And that we will continue to dwell in distress and darkness until the light of Jesus Christ shines upon our souls. May you shine that light upon the hearts of those who are not Christians today and grant them faith and repentance for the glory of Christ. And for those of us who are believers today, may the significance of these words that we've heard today not go by without being understood and considered. May we meditate on this day on who Jesus Christ really is. May we find great joy and comfort in his enthronement names as they describe who he is to us. And may we find all of our contentment and all of our joy and all of our peace, our wholeness, our harmony in him. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.